The early uh, church had a tradition on Easter Sunday that when they greeted each other, some of you know this, one would approach the other and say, He is risen! And the response would be, Thank you, you've just named the title of the sermon this morning. (laughs) And Bridge Kids, you're dismissed. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24 this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 24. Chuck Colson was the chief counsel to President Richard Nixon and also was a co-conspirator in uh, 1972 to 74 in the Watergate scandal. And that's how we got to know Chuck really well. Chuck Colson was sent to prison for his crimes. And it, it was while he was in prison that he began a relationship with Jesus Christ and understood that Jesus died for him and paid for his entire sin penalty And what God wanted for him was a response in faith to trust Jesus Christ, and he did that. When Colson was later asked how he could believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his answer was, the disciples. Over 500 people saw Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. The question was asked Colson, how do you know they were telling the truth? Maybe they were perpetrating a hoax. And how did Colson know? He said it was the disciples. And here's what he wrote. Watergate involved a conspiracy perpetuated by the closest aides to the president of the United States. The most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, he testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on in Watergate, just two weeks. The cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president, all they were facing was embarrassment and maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. However, for the disciples, they were powerless. They were under-resourced. They had no social standing. They faced more than embarrassment and public disgrace. They faced the danger of being stoned. They faced the danger of being crucified. They faced the danger of being beaten publicly. Yet every single disciple insisted up until their death that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. In Watergate, John Dean caved in in just two weeks. He gave up the whole Watergate story in two weeks. If the resurrection story was a cover-up, one might least expect that one of the disciples would have caved in at some point in fear when he was to be stoned to death because some of them were, or crucified, Peter was, or beheaded, the apostle Paul was, that they might give up 
for a lie. But none of them did. Colson writes, Men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. They will never give their lives for something they believe to be false. Today we're going to look back at the first Easter, Luke chapter 24. And we're going to see this from Luke's perspective. Now last week we were in Luke 19. That's, there's four, four and a half chapters. Last week was Palm Sunday. We looked at Palm Sunday in Luke 19. Now we're going to skip over the entire last week and come to Easter Sunday morning um, and look at the resurrection. So uh, let me remind you what happened. Last Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey and people laid down their cloaks and they laid down palm branches because in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 that the king would come riding in on a donkey On Monday, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out the merchants and the money changers because God never designed the temple to be a place of of business. Throughout the last week, Jesus encountered the religious leaders on many occasions and they were often there just to test him, just to see if they could deceive him and trap him. Jesus taught at the temple to his followers many different things. He taught throughout the week. On Thursday, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Thursday was when they went up into the upper room and Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And then they celebrated the first communion, the the Lord's Supper, together over the Passover meal. It was that night that Judas betrayed Jesus. It was that night that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane for prayer with his disciples, and they fell asleep. It was that night that um, Jesus was arrested, and he would appear before Caiaphas, the high priest. He would be denied by Peter three different times that night. Then he would appear to Pilate and Herod in the Sanhedrin, and then Pilate again. He would be beaten by soldiers, he would be flogged, he was made fun of, and he was crucified uh, 9 o'clock Friday morning, and he was dead by 3 in the afternoon. He was taken down and placed in the tomb before sundown Friday night. Saturday passes, no information. This is Sunday morning. Luke chapter 24, let's look at that text. And Luke records, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of the sinful men. Be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women 
because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what happened. What happened? That's our question. What happened? Um, so we go back to verse 1, and this is a setting. It begins on the first day of the week. This is going to be huge, this mention of the first day of the week. The day the resurrection took place, this is going to change the course of history. Sunday is going to become way more important than a Saturday Sabbath in the world. We get a weekend out of this. That's where our weekends came from, is because the church worships on Sunday. And that carries over today. It changed the whole calendar, the way people did things. First day of the week. It's very early in the morning. They left before sunrise. If you put the, all the gospel writers together, you can tell the story. One gospel writer starts them at, uh, before sunrise, and then they're coming along. They get to the tomb at sunrise, after the sun has uh, come up. Um, the women seem to be more devoted than the men. They're going to the tomb. They're first. They want to do something and serve Jesus even in his death. They took spices they had prepared. They went to the tomb. The spices were not to embalm Jesus. Bodies were put in, uh, were buried within 24 hours, and they had to be buried by sundown. And this was a very warm climate, and decomposition happened very fast. And the whole purpose of the spices was just to kill the odor of decomposition. The women clearly were not expecting any kind of resurrection. Verses 2 and 3, we see the empty two. They found the stone rolled away. Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4, tells us how that happened. Um, Luke doesn't tell us this, but Matthew does. And it's an amazing how you can see how the gospel writers fit things together. Uh, one will have information, the other doesn't. They don't conflict. They fit together. There was a violent earthquake for it. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. It was an angel who moved the stone. The women talked about it on the way when they were walking, according to the Gospel of Mark. And it says, uh, who's going to move the stone? They didn't know. They were going to go anyway, even though they didn't have an answer. How big a deal is moving the stone? Well, this stone, it was like a circular stone, could be pretty large. They were flat. They were, they were carved out of stone, and it was to go in front of the tomb. The tomb was like a little cave carved out of rock. And this flat stone was, there were grooves right in front of the grave cut. So this flat stone would roll right along the grooves, and then they would lock it up tight, and they would seal it, but an angel came. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. He wasn't there. Verses 4 and 5, a surprise, a counter. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning, two angels, supernatural beings created by God, 
for the purpose of serving him. And they often, if in the Old Testament and the New Testament, appeared as humans for the sake of humans to communicate with them. And in every case, there was something really unique and supernatural and different about they were not humans. And when humans encountered them, they knew. And they were often afraid. And, and, and these gals bowed low to the ground because they recognized they were in the presence of something awesome in the presence of these angels. Sometimes when the angels appear to humans, they say, do not be afraid, because humans are often scared to death in the presence of an angel. So in the fright, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Oh, that's a good question. What do you mean? We came here because we were, we were there Friday and we saw Jesus crucified. And he was bleeding and he was lifeless and he died. And we saw them wrap him and they carried him off and they, and they laid him in this tomb. That's why we're here. Why would you search for, for the living among the dead? That's a big clue right there. Jesus is living you don't go to a cemetery looking for people who are living. You don't search for living here, the angels are saying. And then they even get a bigger surprise in verses 6 through 8, the astonishing reminder, he is not here, he's risen. Finally, they say it out loud, he's risen, he's not here. He's not among the dead any longer. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? Um, like, okay, girls, Jesus told you this. Don't you remember? This is not the first time this has come up. He talked to you about this. Even the angels know that. And then he... And then he, he he reminds them of what Jesus told them in verse 7. The Son of Man must be. It is necessary. It is God's plan. This is how it works. It's always been part of the plan. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Jesus shared this different times throughout his ministry. Verse 8. This is... Then they remembered his words. You ever forget something important? Have you ever forgotten something God has said in his word that you knew really well? In the midst of difficult circumstances, you forget. They remembered his words. A couple passages here. Luke chapter 9. This is early in Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 9, verse 22 this is Jesus, and he said, the Son of Man, remember that's a term he used most often of himself. It identified him with Messiah of the Old Testament. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That's the religious community. They were on his case throughout his public ministry. And when he got to Jerusalem, they were just all over him. That would, that would be the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day, raised to life. Now, the next passage is Luke 18. 
So this is another case. And Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. Remember, going up all, we were several weeks going up to Jerusalem. Jesus all along is intended to go and fulfill this. We're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written by the prophets in the Old Testament about the Son of Man, about the Messiah, will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They're going to make fun of him. They're going to insult him. They're going to spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus talked about this. We sometimes don't like to believe everything that people tell us, when we, either when we don't understand or it doesn't make sense. Sometimes, and you know, I, would, I confess, I don't know that I would have gotten it. I don't even know if I could have recalled it on Easter morning until I was told or it was quoted to me. Uh, Jesus often spoke in metaphors. How do you, how, if I were a disciple, would it would always be clear to me when he was talking about a metaphor or when he was being literal? What would a metaphoric resurrection look like? Well, Jesus meant literally he would rise from the dead, and exactly what happened. The good news spreads, verses 9 and 10, but not the way you think it would. When they came back from the tomb, the women, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others, and there was so much excitement because this is really good news. He's not there, he's risen. It was Mary Magdalene, and so now we have the, Luke gives us the names. Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with him. There was a, several women there who told this to the apostles. Thank you, ladies. How did you find this out? They said, Jesus is not dead now. He's risen. Changes everything, right? Let's go tell everybody. So now there's just 11, and remember that um, Judas left on Thursday, and he hung himself. So there's only 11 of the disciples left. At this point, it's Acts chapter 1 when they add a 12th one, Matthias. The first skeptics, verses 11 and 12, the first skeptics to the resurrection. Did you ever think about this? But they did not believe the women because their words seems like, seemed like nonsense. Women are silly. You can't believe them in a crisis like that. They tend to be hysterical. And they're so emotional. How can we trust them? That was the first response to the good news. They did not believe the women. They were told the truth. They were told the facts. And they could not trust them. Peter, verse 12, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over. So he ran to the tomb. He bent over and saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and then went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, John chapter 20, verse 3. Let's pick up John's version of this. So Peter and the other disciples started to the tomb. Luke just mentioned Peter because he's focused on Peter. Peter's going to come out and be this really strong leader in the church, in the book of Acts. Luke writes that too. So Peter and the other disciple, well, who's the other disciple? Well, if you know the story of John, it's 
John because that's how John talked about himself. It was sort of a humble way to talk about himself. However, John wants to know that he's faster than Peter. <laughs> Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. You think there was competition between them? Peter's probably older. John's a little younger, a little quicker on his feet. And reached the tomb first. John got there first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. He just stops when he gets to the tomb. Fear? Respect? I don't know. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, and he went straight into the tomb. He just charges in. The door's open. I'm going in. Next slide. He saw the strips of linen lying there, just like Luke said. As, as well as that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place. So here are the grave clothes. They're all laid out in an orderly way. No body. But everything is there in a proper place. You would expect if somebody had unwrapped the body, you know, it would kind of be all over the place. And The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, so John who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. John gets it right here. But not Peter. Peter leaves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. First, Jesus would appear to Mary Magdalene. She appeared to, a, to the woman, Mary Magdalene, first. Then he appears to the women as a group. Women get first pick. They were devoted to him. Jesus honored them on many occasions. They get to be the first to carry the good news. And these big he-man disciples... Don't trust them. So Jesus appears to the women first. He appeared to Peter next. Later, on the day of Easter, he appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. On Sunday night, Jesus would appear to ten of the eleven disciples without Thomas. Later, he would appear to all eleven of them, show himself to Thomas, Thomas would be extremely humbled in the presence of Jesus and say, my Lord, my God. Later, Jesus will appear to more than 500 in Galilee. And last of all, he would appear to one untimely born, and his name was Saul of Tarsus, and he would become the Apostle Paul. That's the resurrection. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. I want to talk a little bit now about the significance of the resurrection. The significance. I love what Daryl Bach wrote. The resurrection was not created by the church. Rather, the church was created by the resurrection. You see, there are a lot of critics of the resurrection who believe, some believe that the disciples, sort of like wanting to have this dream come true, wanting to have Jesus be this hero, that later they would write the stories and write it so that it sounded really good. 
That's one of the things critics have said. That they created the resurrection. Didn't really happen, but that's how the disciples wanted to tell the story. Other critics say, no, it was the second century church that came back and redacted the, the early scriptures and changed it so we had this really wonderful story. Second century, over a hundred years later. 170 years out of the resurrection. Um, so, what's the significance of the resurrection? Well, for one, it is the foundational message of the church. It's the foundational message of the church. Acts 2.22. This is the Apostle Peter. This is the very first sermon. It's an evangelistic sermon. It's in Jerusalem where the enemies of Christ are all over. And he gets up in the city streets and he begins to preach and proclaim about Jesus the Messiah that had just been crucified there. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. You knew, you've heard the stories, you've seen the miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. It was always God's plan, always. Next slide. And you, with the help of wicked men, referring to Gentiles, Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God had different plans, raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's his message. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is how the church got its start. A message about the resurrection. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried on the third day he was raised to save people from the penalty of their sins. Also, it's the foundation of the Christian faith. And uh, the resurrection was proof of Jesus' victory over sin and death and the power of Satan. Let's look at a passage on the victory over sin. 1 Corinthians 15. This is, what is the significance of the resurrection to you who are Christ followers? 58 verses in this chapter to tell you that. Try reading it, okay? Verse 14 through 17. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's how important this is. If there's no resurrection, hey, folks, we are wasting our time here 2,000 years later. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses. Paul is saying, we are liars about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, in fact, if he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Next slide. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. So he's answering this question, are the dead raised? Because some people in Corinth in the first century didn't believe there was going to be a resurrection at all. And this is, his, this is Paul's argument. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And everybody for the last 2,000 years are still in their sins if there is no resurrection. 
The good news is Jesus paid for all sin for all time. But it only benefits those who choose to place their faith in Christ. Also, victory over death. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17. There's a lot of other passages we could do use for these, but here's uh, one I don't use often. This is John. He, has a, he sees Jesus uh, in the future. He says, I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is Jesus speaking. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying he's alive forever. He's got, he's got victory over death. Not only that, he has authority. He has the keys over death and hell. Okay? That's one thing Jesus is saying. Um, also, victory over Satan and demonic hosts. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. So we got victory over um, sin, victory over death, and now victory over Satan. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, John's writing. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. So he's talking about Jesus bringing the kingdom of God. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who is Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Okay? Uh, next passage, Revelation chapter 20. This is at the great white throne. This is at the final judgment. Um, not for believers, but for unbelievers and for Satan himself. And while the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. This is another word for hell, the lake of fire. Where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. Jesus won the victory. Jesus has authority over all demonic forces. Another passage would be Ephesians chapter 1. When God raised him from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead, and he sent it into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. He was placed far above all rule, power, and authority. Those were all ranks of angels. Not only that, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that authority has been given to followers of Christ over angels as well, including demonic forces. William Lane Craig writes, Without belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. I don't think we can imagine how, de how defeated the disciples would have been at the death of Jesus. You know, all of their hopes were dashed when Jesus was on that cross and they took him down and they put him in the tomb and everything is quiet on Saturday. We would have never even heard of them. We would have never known their names. William Sparrow Simpson wrote, as Christ had openly declared himself to be the son of God, his rising from the dead was the seal of God to the truth of that declaration. 
The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on his son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He was called the son of God, and this was the proof he was the son of God. Michael Green writes, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one of the many tenets of belief. So the resurrection just isn't one of those nice things that we say we believe as a Christian. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would have never begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a damp squib with his execution. I didn't know what squib meant, so I looked it up in a dictionary. It, it just means a little filler story. Just been a little aside in history. Christianity stands or falls on the truth of the resurrection. It stands or falls. And the last thing I want to say is the significance of the resurrection. It is good news. It is really good news. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Apostle Paul says, what I've received, he's talking about the gospel, and he says it in verses 1 and 2. This is the gospel, the good news. What I've received, I've passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus died on the cross for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. He's the righteous. He's the just. We are the unrighteous. We are the unjust. He died in our place. He was our substitute. In theology, we call that the substitutionary atonement. He paid it all. I could never add anything to it. I can bring nothing on my own. My own goodness is not worthy to be accepted by God. It has to be the righteousness of Christ. The righteous Christ for me, the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God. He was put to death in the body. That was the crucifixion, but made alive in the spirit. That was the resurrection. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of God's love for you and me that God sent his son. It's because of that love that Christ died in our place, our substitute. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All people fit that category. We are all sinners. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The consequences for our lives apart from God is death. It's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. It's, a, it's separation from God eternally. Jesus called it hell. In John 3.16 Jesus makes it very simple. These are the words of Jesus that he spoke to Nicodemus, the religious leader, who probably had it all together humanly, but not yet a relationship with God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that 
whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why God sent his son. It was because he loved you and me. And he, and he makes this offer to us. Whoever. Does your name fit there? When I grew up as a kid, and I heard these words, and I were taught them in confirmation, I sort of pictured God loved the globe somewhere. He was out in heaven, and the globe was way back there. It was a little dot, and he loved the globe. I got that. I didn't know he loved me personally. I didn't know he knew me personally. He knew all about me. And he loved me anyway. And when I began to understand that, that's why he sent Jesus. And what, he, what he's asked me is to trust him, whoever. If Jerry believes, Jerry will not perish, and Jerry will have eternal life. And that's true for you as well. But it's about you responding to God and to his message. He has one requirement, and that's to believe. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's way. Don't create another way. This is what God has communicated to us. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus and his reputation, who he is and what he's done for us. So this morning is Easter Sunday, and I'd just like to remind all of us, we know how the story turns out. We know the end. We know who wins. We know there will be no more tears and no more suffering and no more grieving and no more death and no more dying. We have a hope for every day that's beyond the grave. On this Easter Sunday, I'd also like to invite anyone here who has never placed their faith in Christ before for eternal salvation, I'd like to give an opportunity as we close this morning to consider what Jesus did for you. So, God sent His Son because you and I are sinners. and By our nature, we're separated from God. Does that make sense to you? Do you consider yourself that you fit? You're not perfect. You have failed God. God sent a son, Jesus, to die in our place. Uh, this, is, this is an amazing thing. Um, God is holy, and he can't be in the presence of sin. And we are not good enough to pay for our own sin. And so he sent Jesus, his son, the perfect son of God, who is holy, and um, whose life, this is the hard part right here, his life is infinitely valuable, and my sin penalty is finite. And his life pays for all sins for all time for every human ever born. And when you think about this, at the death of Jesus on that first Good Friday, God, the holy God, who had to judge sin, 
His holy wrath was poured out on His Son, and Jesus received the wrath of God for us. And we do not have to experience that if we place our faith in Christ. So I'd like to just uh, close this morning by um, giving an opportunity. One of the ways that we can express our faith, faith is trust, it's to believe, it's to rely upon to rely upon Jesus Christ. One of the ways we can express our faith is is through prayer. So I want to suggest a prayer, and I want to go through it the first time so that you can understand it, so everyone here can understand it. And if that prayer made sense to you, I'm going to pray it a second time. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads, and you can pray it with me silently. But the first time, just look up here, and here's the prayer. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. I acknowledge that I will never be good enough to be accepted by you. Thank you you for sending your son Jesus to die for all my sins, the past, the present, and the future. And right now I put my trust in Jesus as the only way of salvation. I believe in you. Please help me to become the person that you want me to be. Please lead and guide my life. It can be that simple. It's not a magical prayer. It doesn't even have to be word perfect. It's about your trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Can you trust him? Let's all bow together and pray as we close. Dear God, and just pray this if you've never done this before and you mean business with God today. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner and separated from you. I acknowledge that I will never be good enough for you on my own. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for all my sins, past, present, and future. Thank you, Jesus, for being my substitute. And right now, I put my trust in you as the only way for my salvation. I believe in you. Please help me to get a fresh start in life with you. Please lead and guide me. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me this morning, would you just mind slipping up your hand so I can see you? If you prayed with me, wherever you are, just slip up your hand. Thank you. If you prayed with me, just slip up your hand. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? If you prayed with me. Okay, let's pray. Lord, uh, just thank you for those who have raised their hands this morning. And I do pray, Father, that you will um, answer their prayer strongly and they might sense your presence this morning, that they might sense you're giving them a clean slate, you're forgiving them of their sin. They have a fresh start with you today. That they have a promise of eternal life forever, that they have hope um, that you're going to lead and guide them, and may they put their lives in your hands and ask for your help. And God, for all of us, we just want to give you thanks for the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ and the impact that has on us for each day. Lord, may we live resurrected lives 
lives that are new and lives that represent one who is born again and one who is following Jesus as leader of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you.